0: Schutt is a professor of biology at LIU Post and a research associate at the American Museum of Natural History. He's the author of Dark Banquet: Blood and the Curious Lives of the Blood-Feeding Creatures, and Pump, A Natural History of the Heart, which is his latest book, I believe. In 2017, Professor Schutt published an astonishing book called Cannibalism, a perfectly natural history that I have right here, which is what we're going to be discussing today. In which honestly I couldn't put down once I started reading it. It's so compelling. I believe I devoured it, um, no pun intended, in two days, which never happens to me unless I'm reading one of Stalin's biographies. Professor Schutt, welcome to Eurotrash.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Out of all the dark taboos out there, I always thought that cannibalism was the most straightforward one. With things like, let's say, murder or even incest, yes, we have a visceral reaction to them, But cannibalism just comes equipped with this universal stop sign that seems older than than time itself as something that holds true across time and space and is completely non-negotiable in any context. And since it seems so unambiguous, I thought there's not really all that much interesting we could say about it. And then I read your book and boy, oh boy, was I wrong because this stuff is Complex, to say the least, and there's many layers to it. The first one that already shocked me was the fact that within the animal kingdom, we find cannibalism practically among all species, pretty much across the board, right?
1: Well, I don't know about all species, but all all animal groups. Yeah, and it, okay. It, it's more common in some than it is in others. For example, animals without backbones, the invertebrates, it's very, very common. Uh, and then once you get into, you know, on, on sort of the other side of the spectrum, once you get into the mammals, it's less common, uh, and then primates, not so common. So, but but it is really widespread. You're right about that, and and that was a big surprise to me as well.
0: So, from what I understand, cannibalism in the animal kingdom fulfills an evolutionary. Function? Could you explain that aspect a bit more?
1: So let me back up a bit. When when I first started working on this book, I noticed that that most of the mentions of cannibalism in the animal kingdom had to do with uh, with with two things. It was it, it was either weirdo animals like uh, like praying mantises or, or black widow spiders who who were cannibalizing each other, or it was animals that were stressed out. For example, uh, golden hamsters, which are a po- very popular pet. Cannibalizing their their young, and and because of the 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 reason that they're doing this is because they're sort of stuffed in small cages and they're stressed out by by these captive conditions, and so that was that was really uh, the party line for a a long time among researchers was that if you're going to get cannibalism, this is this is where you would see it. And when I started to to do the work, the background work on this, I realized that there were scientists who had since the 1970s published papers showing that cannibalism was widespread for for other reasons that had nothing to do with you know a lack of food or or or, or stressful conditions or 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 you know the fact that they were praying mantises or or, or black widows, but I found cannibalism related to things like parental care, or um, you know, as a lifeboat strategy, where you have, for example, three chicks hatch, and and two of them are larger than than the third because they are they hatch earlier, and they're also you know internally they, they get this sort of internal boost of hormones that the third chick doesn't. And if there's plenty of food, then there's no problems. But if, for example, there's a, there's a, a lack of food, uh, then the, the, the two larger chicks will will oftentimes cannibalize the smaller one. So this, this went on and on. And there were all sorts of other reasons. For example, um, you know, one of my favorites was when I went out to, to Arizona and studied these spadefoot toads. And, and here was an example where the unpredictable environmental conditions... Selected for the cannibalistic morph, um, sort of body type, in roughly half of the tadpoles that hatched in these ponds that were transient ponds. They could, the the conditions out there are really, really warm and dry, or, or hot and dry. And these ponds that the eggs are laid in by the toads can evaporate overnight. And so in essence, if the eggs haven't hatched into tadpoles and then evolved and then sort of developed into uh, toadlets that can sort of get out of the pool and, and, and hop away before the pond dries out, then everybody dies. So what has evolved are these cannibal morphs where half of this batch of eggs, you know, they all hatch into tadpoles. They all look the same, but within a couple of days, half of the tadpoles are tremendously larger with these big jaws and, 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 a, and a short meat-eating sort of digestive system. And there are all these other sort of adaptations that, the, that they develop really quickly, and they cannibalize the smaller tadpoles hatched out of the same batch of eggs, which enables them to develop quicker and get out of the pond um, before it could possibly evaporate. So those are the types of things that, that I ran into when I was working on this book that, you know, that just blew me away.
0: I have to say one of the most horrifying instances of animal cannibalism that you describe in the book was that of the tiger sharks. Apparently, once they're in the womb, their embryos develop at different times or something. Um, But that's not the scary part. The scary part is the bigger baby sharks who already have teeth somehow then proceed to eat the smaller ones all while still inside the
1: womb so so think of it this way: they, they hatch from eggs but instead of eggs being laid like we usually think of them and you know the eggs are external the the eggs are maintained inside the mother and there are two oviducts a right and a left and there are eggs that develop at different rates within that oviduct the ones that are the oldest eggs and there's one on the right side and one on the left side they hatch internally and begin devouring the smaller eggs and when those if some of those eggs are still around and they hatch, then, then those two sharks, right side and left side, devour the smaller sharks. And, and in an essence, basically what happens is when they are delivered, when, when, when they leave the, their mother, they are already trained to be hunters. So this is the selective advantage that they have out in this you know, wild and difficult world that they're going to encounter. I think the term for that would be filial cannibalism.
0: Oh, right. And um, the second case that made my hair stand up a little bit was that of Sicilians. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but these sort of snaky worms eating the skin of their mothers as babies. And then that skin grows back and she kind of she's motionless while her babies are eating her.
1: Yeah, these are these are actually amphibians. So they're sort of closely related to things like salamanders and frogs, but they're legless and they look like, you know, they look like an eel or a snake. Um, or, or a large worm, and they're found in the tropics in South America and also in Africa. And there are two very different types. Some of them lay eggs, and some of them have live births. So the, the embryos develop inside the mother rather than than an egg being hatched. The ones that you're talking about, the egg layers, there were films that that people looked at that showed that that, that showed the babies after they hatch sort of squirming around their mothers. And when years later, when people took a closer look at those videos, what they realized was that the mothers, which had grown sort of abnormally fat and and the, their outer layer of skin, suddenly developed a lot of fat content, which no one knew really why that happened. What these babies were doing is sort of latching on to their epidermis, to the outer layer of skin and pulling it off and eating it. So that was one example of sort of maternal cannibalism, parental care uh, type of cannibalism. Years later, what they found was that the groups of Sicilians that give birth to live young, as the babies develop internally, the fat doesn't on the mother doesn't, doesn't accumulate on the outside of its body, but along the oviduct, the uterine tract, and the babies are eating that fat-rich lining of the, uh, of, of the mother's reproductive system so that when they, when they hatch, um, that they're able to have already had a meal. So in both instances, in egg layers and in, in live-bearing uh, Sicilians, they have this incredibly strange maternal cannibalism.
0: It's such an oxymoron, the phrase, paternal care cannibalism.
1: (laughs) They lose a lot of weight, too. The mothers, you know, they don't go through this unscathed, but, um, you know, they they do survive. Uh,
0: By the way, are there some commonalities that we can draw from, from cannibalism in the animal world? Why does that happen?
1: Like I mentioned before, I mean, there's cannibalism that, that, for a number of different reasons, and, and, and some of them are quite different. So, for example, if you get into animals like bears and tigers and lions, if there is a, a, a female who comes into the group uh, and she has, a, a, for example, a cub, then it often pays for the lead male in that group. To kill and cannibalize that cub so that the female comes into estrus and is more receptive to mating quicker. So you get rid of that paternal investment uh, and the and now you can mate with that female. So that there are all sorts of different reasons why this happens. And a lot of times across the animal groups, you'll see similarities in the invertebrates, for example, or even in fish. Let's let's talk about fish for a minute. Yeah. If you're laying five million eggs. If you're a codfish, then those eggs are, are, you know, it's not like there's Tony and then, you know, there's Sally over there. Think of it more like these are raisins. Uh, This is indiscriminate cannibalism. Here's a safe, easy to access food source that many species of fish take advantage of uh, because they're not really putting a dent in the massive numbers of eggs that are out there. A uh, very few of which are ever going to become adults anyway. But but this is something that that crosses many species of, of, of fish where you get you know indiscriminate cannibalism. If you're laying thousands of eggs, then it doesn't really matter if a couple of them right. are eaten or you know a hundred of them even.
0: All right. If we put Neanderthals aside, you begin the story of human cannibalism with Christopher Columbus. And there's a very good, if dark reason for that. Could you break down this that story for us a little bit
1: in the book i talk about the fact that now what had already developed is this taboo which we haven't talked about yet how cannibalism became this knee-jerk reaction that we all have when i say that word you are completely you know you're you're thinking about like jeffrey dahmer and, and what a horror show this is but that developed you know long before christopher columbus but by the time these these sort of flag planters um uh, made their way across the the atlantic it was already a very well established taboo and and it became what well, well, just to use the example of columbus so he gets to the new world and he meets these people indigenous people in in the caribbean and the initial word that goes back to uh, to the queen is that they're nice people they are they're fit to become good christians and 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 that's what we'll do now now columbus was looking for gold and and he didn't find any gold in the caribbean when when that sort of came about and he made four voyages. Then things changed, and going from looking for gold, and there was, as I said, very little of it, if any. He tried to find another resource, and 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 the most valuable resource that he found were humans. And so Queen Isabella had, and once again paraphrasing, is is, is that if the people that you encounter are are good people, then 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 you need to treat them well. But if they're cannibals, you can do whatever you want. All bets are off. And so lo and behold, on a, Third and forth journeys to the new world, you know, instead of these kind people that he met, they were all cannibals. So you could do whatever you wanted to them. You could destroy their civilization. You could murder them. You could enslave them. You could steal everything that they owned. And that's what he did and the and And the Spaniards that followed him as well, and other European groups did the same thing in Mexico and Central America and South America, and then in Africa. It was the same thing if If you could call someone a cannibal and in reality, these journeys became sort of like uh, eliminating pests, you weren't dealing with humans and and this happened time and time again, so you dehumanize indigenous groups you know and the best way to do that is to call them cannibals. That's not to say that some cannibalism probably didn't occur in uh, in these groups because. You know, one of the themes of my book is that culture is king. and it's the, that, that's the major difference between humans and human cannibalism and animal cannibalism. And humans determine whether cannibalism is a, is a wonderful way to to honor your dead uh, if you're the Ware in South America or the four in New Guinea. or if the the very concept of of consuming another human is horror, the worst thing that you can do. So it's just a matter of the fact that that the, in Western culture, and this started with the ancient Greeks and then moved to the Romans. And then and then throughout Europe, that cannibalism was, was literally the worst thing that you could do to another human being. And the only way that that, that that it would occur was if the gods were mad at you or you were doing it in an extreme form of vengeance. So there was a big difference there in, in cultures. So there are cultures where, at least there were, where cannibalism is something that is done to honor the dead, for example.
0: If we go back um, to Conquistadors and to Christopher Columbus. um, So like you said, they kind of weaponized this taboo against the local populations, right? Suddenly every local that was found resisting was proclaimed a cannibal practically. And a particularly striking story in this horrible saga is that of Trinidad that you describe in the book. The Spanish, of course, thought that there was lots of gold there. So the locals were designated as non-cannibals at first, since the Spaniards needed a proper workforce to mine. Once it turned out that there was no gold there, reports began filtering suddenly that the locals were cannibals after all. So it was kind of okay to start killing them again. Yeah,
1: they basically depopulated that entire island, which is horrifying.
0: Where does the taboo of cannibalism, which here in the West, like you said, we regard as one of the worst there is, uh, if not the worst, where does it come from? At
1: least in Western culture, it started with the ancient Greeks. Yes. They were the ones who sort of determined that, that cannibalism was something that a good Greek would never do, that the others did this, you know, which is very similar to the
0: barbarians.
1: Yeah, the, the the barbarians, and this is the same line that Columbus and the and the flag planters uh, used as well. And from the the Greeks, it got passed on to the Romans, and from the Romans, it spread throughout Europe. I, you know, so so later on, it would it would be Shakespeare, and it would be the Brothers Grimm, and and you had a snowball effect where cannibalism was thought of as really the worst thing that you could do. And then it entered into the early anthropologists, and they were expecting to find cannibals wherever they went, and and so. Uh, yeah. Um and, and it goes on and on. You had uh, Daniel Defoe with when he wrote Robinson Crusoe, just this idea that is ingrained in the Western brain that cannibalism is is the, the most serious taboo. That that was my hypothesis, is that where this is this is how this all took place. And in order to sort of follow that up to lend evidence to it, I said, okay, so where was a place that had a, a well-recorded culture that, that didn't really have the connections. Or the major connections to the West. When I looked, I, I came across China, and for the longest time, you know, of course there were there was some connection going back and forth between between China and Europe, but it was not a major for a long time. It was not a major exchange of information, and so for the longest time in China, this vast country, you know, they never got the memo that cannibalism was the worst thing you can do. And so there was culinary cannibalism in the 13th and 14th century and, and filial piety, where if you had a, um, a sick relative, one of the things that you could do as, a, as a, a young member of the family was to cut off a piece of your of your flesh and feed it to them, tied into the idea of medicinal cannibalism, that this might be able to help them survive. And there were a lot of cultures that they never got the message that cannibalism was the worst thing that you could do. And, and they incorporated it into their practices. And so once again, culture is king. It's the individual cultures who determine what is right and what is wrong not just cannibalism of course
0: it's a bit odd because christianity seems to have some tentative relationship with cannibalism i'm an atheist but i went to bible school as a kid and i always struggled with the bit where the sacramental bread and wine turns into jesus's body and blood and we have to eat them during mass especially because the nuns told us that this actually happens I didn't and kind of still don't understand why we have to eat Jesus if on the other hand eating somebody is the worst thing that exists.
1: You know, when, when you write a book about cannibalism, you sort of expect that you're going to get some flack back about it. It was the section that I wrote about the host and, and the wine at, during communion uh, that got the most flack from people associated with the Vatican, for example. But yeah, a lot of my relatives are, are, are Catholics and, and I don't believe that any of them consider that when they are taking communion on Sunday that they are actually eating the body of Jesus Christ and, and drinking his blood but it, you know this is symbolic and they realized that but back in the old days there was no symbolism there were popes who went out there and said no this is not symbolic this is actually the transformation of christ's body into this communion wave
0: yeah that sounds familiar and,
1: and anybody who stands against that is uh, you know is, that's blasphemy and things were things were a lot more difficult back then as well if you were um, a, a jew for example who was Convicted of uh, of abusing the host, you would you know quickly burn. That was a really interesting aspect, and and maybe the most controversial thing that I talked about among many in this book.
0: Can I ask what sort of pushback did you receive from the Vatican?
1: <laughs> it wasn't really from it, it. wasn't directly from the Vatican. It was from people who were associated tangentially with the Vatican who told me that uh, you know that that to consider this cannibalism is was uh, was ridiculous. <laughs>
0: Um, now, uh, despite our long standing kind of yeah cultural distaste for it, people actually practiced a peculiar form of cannibalism in Europe for a very long time up until very recently. even Could you tell us a bit more about that? yeah,
1: this was one of the two big surprises that I got when i when I decided to write this book and started to look into it. The first was how widespread it was across the animal kingdom, so we 've talked about that, but the other was that given this Western taboo and how strong it was. The fact that starting in the Middle Ages and going right up into the early 20th century, body parts of every type were used medicinally. So we're talking about blood. We're talking about fat. We're talking about flesh to cure things like epilepsy or, or bad skin. or uh, it, 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 and, and it just went on and on. And this really, this was a huge surprise. And, and as I said, this went right up into the 1900s. In the Merck Index, which is sort of the pharmacological encyclopedia, mumia was listed as having, powdered mummy was listed as having medicinal value.
0: Powdered mummy.
1: Yeah, this all came about because of a mistranslation. Uh, There was an Arabic term similar to the word mummy, and the Europeans who who came across that term, for for a while the Arabs had taken over Egypt. And, and one of these translations was mistranslated because in Arabic, they were talking about this sort of bitumen, tarry substance that they were using to close wounds, for example.
0: So uh, topically. Like a
1: bandage almost that would dry right. and close the wound. And the Europeans mistranslated it and thought that they were talking about mummies and so that mummies have medicinal value. So so, so mummies were shipped to, to Europe or stolen uh, and ground up and, and, and sold as uh, as uh, as having medicinal value. And as I said, this went on for 100 years or so, right up into the beginning of the 20th century. It was like the 19-teens in the Merck Index. Here you had this, uh, the, this substance, Mumia.
0: So what, you could just walk? into a pharmacy and say, I want some grounded mummy. I have a headache. And they would just give it to you in the 19th century. It was
1: probably not real mummy. They would take some dead guy and dry him out and grind him up.
0: But they would actually use bodies for that. Yes. Yep. yep. And what do they think this is going to cure? What kind of diseases? Just a cure-all? Or... Yeah,
1: I I, I I can't remember the specifics, but but I think it was more or less like you said, a general cure all for for you know whatever ailed you. Okay. Instead of it was you know it was more or less along the lines of instead of take two aspirin and call me in the morning, it was you know pop this um, mumia, probably made into an elixir, uh, and then and then uh, drank.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, that's <laughs> that's pretty crazy. Um, all right, at this
1: medicinal. Cannibalism still survives today in, in you know, people who think that consuming their placentas is, it does, uh, does some good. And I had some experiences with that as
0: well. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you described that in the book, that you actually partook in that form of cannibalism a little bit. Could you, could you talk about that as well? Because <laughs> that's fascinating. Is that still going on, this trend, by the way? Yeah, and it's not widespread,
1: and it's 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 basically a form of alternative medicine. So you might find it in practitioners of alternative medicine, mostly in the United States. It's not found very many other places. Started out as a sort of late hippie thing, late '70s, not as a not more as a, a sort of communal. Um, we're talking about the placenta. Let's clear that up here, which is the mostly fetal tissue, partially maternal tissue and it's uh, it's really the uh it's really sort of the um the interface between the developing fetus and the mother the mother's blood is it goes through and is filtered by the placenta before it enters the uh, the baby so you can think of it as that and, but it is delivered with the you know after the this is after birth this is what we're talking about here and some women believe that consuming the placenta after giving birth restores the hormones that are lost when the placenta is uh, you know is de- is delivered things like curing the baby blues the depression that sometimes follows uh, giving birth this was the reasoning b- behind consuming your, your placenta i had finished writing the pretty much finished writing the book and i and i, I recently retired took an early retirement from teaching but I was probably about 10 days away from starting a semester. And I had come across this story about, uh, about placentophagy and made a couple of phone calls to talk to researchers who, who might know about it. And one of them hooked me up with, uh, with a woman who lived in, um, outside of Dallas, Texas who who did this for a living she went to the hospital she collected the placenta and then she would bring it home and 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 you know she would do things like dry it out and make powder out of it or you know if you wanted to have it fresh she would make a a slurpee out of it (laughs) um and so there were all sorts of ways that she would prepare this thing so i'm talking to her on the phone for not like a half an hour and she's telling me about her clients and how interesting this was and and at the end of the conversation she goes well, you know, it's too bad you can't come down here because you could eat my placenta. And I, and I went, well, and she said, yeah, my I just gave birth, you know, a month or so ago, and and I I've got one in the in the freezer. My husband is a is a, is a chef. He can prepare it for you any way you want. It you can make a taco out of it. You can make have it asabuco style. However you want it, you can have it. And I and I I'm just like amazed. I'm sitting there going, thinking to myself, did this woman just invite me down to? Dallas, Texas, which I've never been there before to eat her placenta. And then I started to think, you know, if it's 10 years from now, I've written a book about cannibalism and talked about this and, and I had the chance to go down there and do this and I didn't do it, that, then I'd be kicking myself in the behind. I know it. So I told my wife about it and she was like, yeah, go. So 10 minutes later, I had bought tickets, flew down there through a hellacious storm that had knocked out the power uh, to, the, to, to, this, to this area. And I'm 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 in the hotel that night, and I go out to eat, and it's a really really weird vibe, and and it had to do with the fact that that there was you know this there was first instances of, of some serious illness that had come in from Africa, and people were really freaked out about it. So everybody's like all wired and on edge. I get a phone call from her, and she says, you know, well our our babysitter canceled on us. We were going to drop off our little angels, but I got to tell you that my that my ten homeschooled kids will be there when you come over tomorrow morning. So uh, the next day um, I I head over to her house and I make a stop at the liquor store and I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, uh, I got to bring a bottle of wine for this. I'm thinking, all right, well, I want to find the most Texas looking salesperson that I can find down there, which was not difficult as a lady with cowboy boots, the whole nine yards. And I said, well, you know, I've got a really interesting pairing for you today. You know, And I told her what I was, and she literally ran away from me. So I, so i grabbed the bottle of italian red and uh, and i made my way over to her house and uh and and got greeted by this wave of 10 kids who were all over me you know had never seen an iphone before it, you know this is back a, a couple of years ago can i hold your iphone and can I, are you going to eat my mother's placenta and you know. <laughs> so it turned out to be this incredibly incredible experience i interviewed her and 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 she pretty much admitted that that what she was dealing with was the placebo effect. She was very intelligent and and recognized that there were no real scientific papers out there that 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 showed that that consuming your placenta did very much of anything, especially if you cooked it and you're thinking in terms of if, if you're going to replenish your hormones by eating a placenta, hormones are a type of protein, and if you take this and cook it you now have denatured this protein. Okay. you do this albumin in an egg. it's not the same thing when you cook it. Uh, as it is in the egg, and and she recognized that. But as she did say, and and we got to agree with it, is that you know the placebo effect is very strong. So if you think you're getting a benefit out of it, many times you do. So after the interview was over, her husband comes out and he's got like a, a complete chef's uniform on. He's got the hat, the whole thing, and he and he steams up these vegetables and uh, first cooks some vegetables and you know sweats them. And he says, I, these vegetables are organic. And I'm like, I just remember saying, thank God, because there's no chance that I'm eating your wife's placenta unless the vegetables are organic. So we, so he cooks this up in the freezer. They defrost these little bits of of her placenta. It really wasn't that much. It was, you know, maybe a couple of tablespoons. What does that looks, look like, by the way? It, it looks like organ meat. If you've ever like chopped up a kidney or- Like uh, liver or-, or? Yeah, kind of like that. Okay. Um so he cooks it up. I ate it, and, and it was delicious. It was, you know, he added the wine to it. You know, it's just like anything else. It's how you cook it, and what part of the uh, of the body, whether it's a cow or a human, or you know, or, or a pig or a chicken, it depends on what part you're eating, and what it tastes like. And it tasted to me like, uh, it was a bit unique. And, and back when I was in college, we had, we we're all of us, we were all broken on Sundays. We used to watch football and we used to get chicken gizzards and, and, and fry them up with, uh, you know, with garlic and olive oil. The taste reminded me of, of a chicken gizzard, but it had, mm-hmm. it was, it had the consistency. It was very tender. It, it had the consistency of veal. So that's what it tasted like. And so, yeah, if I'd have written, you know, I've written three novels and, and, and if you'd have let me just write this, make this entire trip up. It could not have been any weirder than it was. And she was wonderful. And her, and her kids were wonderful. And her, and her husband was really cool. And, you know, they, they, they were very poor. And I, I just remember for, for a number of Christmases after that, just sending them boxes of, of, of gifts and things like that for her kids. And it, it, you know, I, I went in, they were all snarky thinking, you know, um, 10 kids, it's going to be like the old woman in the, in, who lived in the shoe. And, and I just felt like such an idiot because she was such a nice person and, and, and so kind and treated me so well. And, um, you know, it was a very memorable experience. I would never do it again.
0: Uh, did Did that. you feel different after eating the no. placenta?
1: No. Were you like,
0: really. now I'm officially a cannibal?
1: No, never thought, <laughs> never thought that I just thought, you know, I was doing it for the, for the sake of the book. I, I right. don't, you know, this, this is not something that I think makes any sense, especially since I could have, if she'd yeah. have been ill, I might've gotten, you know, I might've gotten sick. And so that was a chance that I took. And and so I do tell people that I, I don't believe that there are, that there are any benefits whatsoever, but there are definitely some, some possible problems that, that, that might develop from, from doing that. So it, it's not something that I recommend.
0: All right. So this placebo effect didn't work on you.
1: No, I hadn't had um, morning sickness or uh, or that sort of thing in you know in <laughs> Okay,
0: um, just to make it clear, this point is any form of chewing or ingesting any part of you know the bo- of human body in any form is that considered cannibalism? Because, for example, I'm a nervous wreck. I bite my fingernails all the time, so am I might, technically speaking, as some sort of a self-sado cannibal or something.
1: There are gray areas in 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 cannibalism. But if you're kissing somebody and you're swapping spit with them, is that cannibalism? And you know, so so there are also if, if you bite your fingernails, that sort of thing. So there are certainly gray areas where you could. I mean, you could say that it's cannibalism, but that's really not what we're talking about here. I define cannibalism as consuming all or part of another individual of the same species or or, or a substantial part of that individual. Okay. Um, that's cannibalism to me. So, for example, I work at the Museum of Natural History. One of my colleagues, when we talked about cannibalism in, in, in dinosaurs, uh, Mark Norell, a, a curator there, and I got into a discussion, and he had said that when he was in, in Africa, he saw a, a camel uh, eating a, another camel that was dead. And, and he said he didn't consider that cannibalism. He considered it scavenging. And I said, well, I consider it cannibalism because its camel is eating another camel. If it had been eating a dead pig, then I wouldn't consider it cannibalism. Like I said, there are gray areas here and there's some discussion about what is and what isn't.
0: Okay. I recently went to to McDonald's uh here in, in Berlin and I saw a pigeon eating some chicken nuggets that somebody left over. It just seemed kinda of wrong, but I don't know. That's different species though.
1: Yeah, that's anyway. not cannibal.
0: I have another tricky yeah, sorry, go ahead. If the
1: if the pigeon had been eating pigeon McNuggets, then it would have been
0: Okay. I have another trick one for you. I'm a massive hip hop fan. And when the rapper Tupac got shot and killed, there was a rumor floating around that was apparently confirmed later that members of his crew, the outlaws, rolled some of his ashes in a joint and smoked them. There's also the story about Keith Richards snorting some of his father's ashes from the table. Would these cases be considered cannibals? Or not really.
1: I'd I'd never heard the Tupac story. So I can't really comment on that. If they rolled his ashes and, and what, smoked it? Yeah, not really consuming it. And and by the same token, w- what I had read happened with Keith is that his beloved father had been cremated and, and in transferring his ashes from one place to another. Some of them fell onto the onto the table and he, he just sort of wiped them up with with his finger and just sniffed them in. And, and I thought it was kind of a, the way he described it, I thought it was extremely touching. And, and I don't think he was being an idiot. I I just think he was, that was a bit of respect that he was paying to his dad, but I don't consider either one of those to be cannibalism. If, you mm. know, if he, if he'd have huffed down the, uh, the, the ashes or they, they'd consume them, consume packs ashes, uh, then, then I guess you might consider it cannibalism. As I said, there's a lot of, there's a lot of gray, gray areas.
0: Yeah. You describe a lot of cases of survival cannibalism, where people have nothing else to eat but but um, the bodies of their comrades or um, other humans. By the way, how much nutrition do you get from eating a human? Why are these these people who resort to survival cannibalism or who have to always so gaunt and skinny when they find them? You would be, I would be thinking that you know you would get some proper nutrition out of
1: that. That look that you see is the same look when you see starved children. And and basically what has happened is that you have you're starved to the point where your body is literally cannibalizing itself. Your your protein is being broken down um so that uh, uh, as a nutritional source by your own body. And that's why you have this sort of like sunken appearance that people who are uh, you know uber starved have. Yeah, I, I I think that the human body in these conditions would be as as nutritious as, as any other mammal that you might consume. Um, so, and so you're, you're eating muscle first probably, uh, and then you're going for, uh, and, and then you're eating, uh, organs like, uh, like the liver and, and heart and there's nutrition there. We're, we're not talking about, you know, getting super healthy for a diet of consuming human flesh, but it is, you know, it's mammal flesh,
0: All right. As we touched on it before, there were many cases of Western European colonizers designating local populations as cannibals. So they had a convenient reason to subjugate them. Right. Most of the time, these were either rumors or, you know, things they heard, inventions. There was hardly any proof.
1: Well, I mean, there, there could have been ritual cannibalism as well.
0: Right. Yeah. So on this note, we do know for sure that some tribes like you mentioned in in guinea for example new guinea did practice a form of ritual funerary cannibalism right we know that because also because a, a horrible disease began spreading among amongst these tribes Kuru, i think it was called a disease mm-hmm. that literally produces holes in in the brain tissue
1: Yeah, it's very reminiscent of alzheimer's i think it's on the same spectrum okay actually, as alzheimer's disease and the fact that it causes um severe progressive damage to the to to the brain
0: so if we discard our kind of social or cultural reservations could we consider Kuru, this disease as the ultimate proof that cannibalism is necessarily a bad practice or are things not so simple
1: there was this facebook thing the other day that was like what what would you never eat and i just put brains down there. Because whether you're talking about humans or, or you're talking about deer, for example, you're getting, you know, there is the possibility of getting this type of spongiform encephalopathy. It is a disease that is, it depends on who you talk to, is either caused by self-replicating proteins, which have never been seen, called prions, or it's caused by a, a something that's been termed a slow virus. And I have really been on the fence about which of these I, I believe, because there are some serious experts on both sides. But, it, but in any event, those diseases come about, whether you are getting mad cow disease or whether, yeah. you, uh, whether you're dealing with Kuru, uh, come about because of eating neural tissue, spinal cord and brain of an infected individual. And so this was a great fear. Back when, when the rules that were, were being used to, to deal with animals in slaughterhouses and how they were fed uh, changed, uh, back in the 1950s and 1960s, there was a great fear that uh, that people were going to come at, down with, with mad cow disease because they were literally chopping up cows that had died and feeding them to other cows. And, and there were many instances of mad cow disease, and, and some of them got into people. And young people, for example, died tragically. You know, that's one aspect of this as, as, as a negative from cannibalism. And by the same token, the anthropologists who went into New Guinea, Uh, in the 1950s found to their horror that approximately 1% of of this indigenous group, the four were dying from this terrible wasting disease. Two Nobel prizes were won by the researchers who did that work to figure out that it was, that it stemmed from the fact that women and children after people had passed away, would consume parts of the deceased. The, the researchers wondered why aren't men getting this disease? So there was this whole, you know, they thought it might've been genetic, but then children of both sexes were getting this. And what they found out was that it was because the women and the children were consuming body parts, but the adult men weren't. And that it was from something very similar to, to mad cow disease. You had this, either a prion or a, or a virus that was found in the in an infected, uh, victim's nervous system and if you consumed it that you would pass it on and it didn't matter if you cooked it or not uh, you weren't you weren't destroying it. it. It's something that would scare me if if there became widespread cannibalism anywhere uh, that that would, would certainly be something you'd have to you would have to consider is the health hazards of um, of, of this horrible incurable disease.
0: So does that come only from consuming brain tissue? Or other body parts as well from
1: what i understand the highest concentration of this is found in the brain and spinal cord and nerve nerves so yeah
0: all right um there's also the example i mean the example the hypothesis that that was a contributing factor for the demise of the neanderthals right
1: yeah that was a model that someone put together and and i i thought it was a really interesting model but there's there's absolutely no proof you know he just said there's proof that there was cannibalism that took place. There's proof that Kuru kills will kill you. So that might have, might have been a contributing factor to the demise of the Neanderthals. There's there's no solid evidence. It was sort of a mathematical model that a researcher put together. I thought it was interesting, but 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 I mean I do spell it out as as a model, not nothing more. There's, it's not like they found Kuru, they, they found evidence of Kuru in the fossil record. They haven't.
0: Hmm. I recently hosted a famous anthropologist, Professor Stringer, on the podcast, and we talked about this as well. He, he said that's a very reasonable hypothesis and that he thinks it's very possible. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Oh, wow. Time is passing. Um, right. These days, it seems that in, in pop culture, cannibalism is all the rage, right? We have the TV show Hannibal with Matt Mikkelsen. I love that guy. Uh, we got the sexy French film Raw. Then there was the film Fresh. And now we have Bones and all. With Timothy Chalamet, it seems like the whole incest business that Game of Thrones kind of brought in is out, and cannibalism is in. Why do you think that is?
1: Uh, luckily for me, as a matter of fact, <laughs> <I> mean,
0: <laughs> good timing.
1: Yeah, um, you know, to me it reminds me of, of the of the idea of vampirism. There's something kind of kind of well with vampirism. It's something like sexy about it, and with cannibalism, it's certainly not sexy. But it is there is food plus number one taboo equals fascination so if you can run that through a filter of sort of fictionalization then it becomes acceptable then you can watch it if you know that it's fiction you know i i guess people are stimulated by that we're into violence and gore you know since the 19 late 1960s when bonnie and clyde and the wild bunch came out and uh, you know then people were getting blown apart on the screen You know, then there was this acceptance of, uh, there was more acceptance of gore than anybody had ever seen before in in the media. And so I think we've become numb to it. And as I said, we're all disgusted if we hear about criminal cannibalism. But if you are watching a movie where you know it's, you know, this is fictional, then you're fascinated by it because it's this combination of of food, which has always had a tie into cannibalism. If you think about other cultures, they're sometimes sort of ostracized because of what they eat. For example, when I was a kid, you know, I heard the slang term for French, it was frogs. It was because they supposedly ate frog's legs. I didn't know if that was true or not. So you're, you're defined by what you eat. So you tie that into this taboo that we have. And I think you've got, you've got all this interest right now.
0: I see you wearing the t-shirt depicting Nosferatu. You think that vampires and vampirism was once a safer way to talk about cannibalism? oh
1: gosh i i you know i think vampirism is a form of cannibalism but um okay i I don't really tie the two together very much
0: we're almost at the end no we are at the end which means i have to ask you something a bit trashy because the name of this podcast is Eurotrash. trash you alluded to it already but it seems that these these days on screen the cannibals are getting sexier and sexier over time right we had anthony hopkins Kind of yeah. smart, sophisticated, but he was a bit older, like dra- more like Dracula or something. Like then we got Mats Mikkelsen, who was already kind of like sexy. He was an excellent chef, also uh, extremely snazzy. And now we have Timothy Chalamet, the ultimate heartthrob cannibal. Is there any sort of connection between cannibalism and sex?
1: Oh, well, look, so now you have food plus the taboo, and then you have this really handsome guy. So that, that <laughs> I mean, it, you know, Bones and All flopped badly.
0: Oh, really? Because here everybody's talking about it. They're they're like, you have to go see that movie. I didn't check the box office. Though. There was this
1: huge lead up to it in the States. And i had been interviewed a number of times about it. And then when the movie finally hit it, it didn't do well at all. You know, but I, I you know, once again, I, you, you just go back to these, to the attraction to cannibalism and then add the fact that, let's see, should we have the cannibalism be this kind of like ugly old guy, not talking about Anthony Hopkins, who I don't consider to be an ugly old guy, but um, let's put this sexy guy in here. Oh yeah. That's a, that's a much better idea. I I just think that's what you're dealing with here.
0: What's next though. We had incest cannibalism. Where can we go next in pop culture and movies? Is there anything left? (laughs) What's the (laughs) boundary?
1: Yeah, I want to write about it if it's uh, if it's out there. I you know I'm trying to figure out what the, what the next thing that I'm writing about is. After cannibalism that I wrote a book about the natural history of the heart and I just finished one on the evolution of teeth and the natural history of teeth. So yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, and and get back into some into some weirdness, but there there's nothing that that strikes me right now as being quite as interesting and multifaceted as cannibalism was after my book on teeth comes out, I, I think the next thing that'll come out is a children's version of the cannibalism book, which is now in discussion with, uh, uh, with my publisher Algonquin. Uh, there's nothing that comes to mind that, that is equivalent to that and, and something that can be approached not from a, you know, I tried to stay away from the real sensational aspects of cannibalism. Because there have been a lot of what I consider to be junk out there. Oh, right, the other... just
0: like Jeffrey Dahmer all the time and all of this stuff and Ed Gaines. Yeah. And I, and
1: I really wanted to stay away from that when I wrote this book. For one, I didn't. Want, I wanted to look at cannibalism through the eyes of a zoologist, a scientist. I'm also an educator. I didn't want to lay on the heavy terminology and show off how much science I knew. I wanted to explain things. And I, I just thought that was an approach that had never been taken before with this topic, cannibalism. On the other side, on the opposite side of the spectrum from the sensational stuff, were the academic works that that you would only read if you were a scientist who was working on this species who cannibalized for whatever the reason happened to be. So there was this opening that I just walked right through when when I wrote this book. And I I sort of did the same thing for blood feeding and vampirism. But yeah, I'm looking for the next topic to do that with. And I haven't quite come up with it. Well, yet.
0: I hope you do. Cause this book was absolutely fantastic. Oh, I really well, recommend it to everybody. Uh, where can people follow your work?
1: Bill com. So I have a website and then you can just look me up on Facebook. It's Bill shut author also on Goodreads, Bill shut author, uh, all over Amazon. The book is available wherever you want in every format. All of my books are, I'm just thrilled about that. So I, I hope you guys are, and your, your readers are, are, are interested enough in to, to sort of follow up with it. And Get back to me. You can certainly contact me through my website. Happy to chat with readers.
0: Awesome. Uh, Professor Schott, thank you so much for taking the time. This was fantastic.
1: You're very welcome. Nice to be here, Zaza.
0: Hey, what was that? Anyway, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Just want to give a quick shout out to my amazing patron, Thea Dejman You rock. Thank you so much for the support. If you want to do that as well, You can do it on Patreon. Just find Eurotrash there, I suppose. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Thanks again for listening. Ciao!